This is 1988 Tops, where every card has a story to tell. Your hosts are David McKellis and Matt Kuzma. Let's play ball. Welcome back to 1988 Tops. David, what's our card for this week? Matt, our card for this week is Jerry Royster, number 257. Jerry Royster, shortstop, second baseman for the New York Yankees. Okay, great. I'll pull Jerry up here on the Jumbotron. This is our first member of the New York Yankees in the 1988 Tops podcast. So that's pretty exciting. But it looks like before we get to Jerry, we have some follow-up from the last episode. Is that right? The last episode, we talked a little bit about other top sets in 1988, particularly OPG and the great work that OPG was doing in Canada, including French and English language fun facts on their cards. But I also wanted to bring up all of the many other 1988 top sets, and I thought maybe we could just run through all of them on the pod this week. That sounds awesome. In a podcast that features 792 cards, we're really, it's just scratching the surface, really. This has become an eternal podcast. (laughs) Well, that is what I signed up for, the eternal 1988 podcast. On the Tom Hankey episode, you raised the topic of OPG. There were only 396 cards in that set, as compared to the 792 in the regular top set. So it was slightly limited. You also have the Tops Traded set, which includes updates, guys who were traded throughout the season, the U.S. Olympic team, new managers who were hired throughout the year. The other every year seeming set in the 80s was the Tops Tiffany set. Those were limited edition collector set. They were in like a fancy box. For example, the 1988 set was in this green box with kind of fancy lettering and these tiffany sets were limited in numbers which is why the tiffany cards are slightly more expensive and those are a glossier card as well yes you could you can tell by their the cut the the carrot the (laughs) clarity right i am curious about these other sets we're going to get to that have, have only 30 or 40 cards like why the heck did they do this there were branded cards in 1988 from bazooka gum 22 cards Kmart, KB, Revco, which had league leaders. Tom Hankey, because he led the league in saves, had a Revco league leader card. Rite Aid made team MVP cards. Toys R Us had rookies. And Woolworths also had a baseball highlights set. Now I'm looking here, David. All of these are 33 cards. It's very strange that it's a multiple. Well, then again, wait a minute. 792 is a multiple of 11. You know this because if you add up alternating digits of any number, if they are the same, then that number is divisible by 11. And so I think that we found the secret. There must be something where the sheets must have some sort of multiple of 11 baked into them. We just cracked the code. A tops uncut sheet of cards is 132 cards, 11 across by 12 down. Uh, at one point, I think I had an uncut sheet of 1988 Topps cards that might be in my parents' attic. So some of these cards are smaller, which we'll get into, uh, we'll get into next. The UK Minis set was 88 cards that were 2 and one eighths inch 
by three inches. That's compared to the normal 1988 Topps card, which was two and a half by three and a half. So a half inch smaller. A quarter inch or an eighth of an inch. Uh, three eighths of an inch smaller. Of an inch. <laughs> yeah. So in width. Yeah. In how does that there. convert in Celsius? Yes. Uh, the boiling point of those cards is it's different. I feel like you need, there's there's got to be some kind of some kind of Cockney slant rhyme for baseball cards that we need to we'll need to learn. I don't know why they were smaller, but it wasn't necessarily just a UK thing. There were also this mini leaders set that was released in the US was also this slightly smaller size. It's an okay looking card. It looks a little bit glossy. The back of it is multicolored, which was rare at this time, but. They also have, because these are for a UK audience, it seems that the Topps company thought that people didn't know anything about baseball, but would be interested in buying baseball cards. On the Tom Hankey card, it says, the SV category indicates number of saves a pitcher has achieved. And while, you know, Matt, you and I went through a long dissertation about saves and the save category last week, it seems like if somebody's interested in buying a baseball card, they don't need an explanation of saves. Yeah, um, that is a, it's the opposite of a fun fact. Yes, it's a learning <laughs> fact. It's a school fact and leads us into our next weirdly sized card, which is the 1988 Tops Big. Ooh, yes. What year did the movie Big come out? I'm going to guess 87. Big came out in 1988. In 1988. Big year for Big in 1988. Both Tops making the Big cards and the film Big, which I think would be better served with Tom Hankey in the Tom Hanks role. That would be an amazing movie. But the Tops company decided to come out with a Big card, which is similar to those UK cards not that much bigger. These cards were two and five eighths by three and three quarters. So like not even perceptibly that much larger. I remember getting a, a pack or two of these. I think that they had maybe seven cards in a pack. They're slightly bigger. They're kind of neat and maybe foretold what was coming with the hobby. They were they had like kind of glossy fronts and then the back of them was also in color, similar to those UK cards. These big cards were kind of neat, but they only lasted for a couple seasons and partially it was because I think Topps was expecting that the novelty would be worth something, but instead collectors just looked at it and said, what am I supposed to do with this? I have to buy all new accoutrement mm -mm. for nope. my cards. No way. Yeah, that's never going to fly. After going big with these big cards, Tops went even bigger in 1988, and they made folders. So, you know, in your 1988 Trapper Keeper notebook, you could have an Eric Davis folder. It was a full nine and a half by 11 and three quarter inch folder. You walk into a meeting, you see that the other guy, the other side of the negotiation has a Tom Hankey. Oh, man. You know? <laughs> That's he. They brought in the closer. That's right. So after going smaller, then going bigger, and then going even bigger, 
some visionaries at the Tops company thought, let's just go beyond paper. Let's go beyond card stock. And that they came back with some kind of cards on a material that looks and feels kind of like uh, Tyvek, like uh, vinyl cards. And this was new to me. I have never, I had never heard of this. If you look at these, I think it's more about the novelty of them trying new and experimental materials, but these were never released and I don't think they made them again, but they are uh, relatively popular among collectors trying to find oddities. You know, from experimental fabrics, you also get into stickers. So the way that they're set up, they have a card that has a player. So like the one that I'm looking at right now has Tim Wallach on one side, and that is the card. And then on the other side, there are two stickers. And this one has Don Mattingly and Ernie Witt on the other side. The stickers don't have any statistics. The other side with the player has career stats and 1987 stats. These were also made in variations, so each player card could have multiple different stickers on the back of them. Many different options of what card and sticker combination. Some of them also have pictures from the NLCS or pictures from the World Series, so there's some action shots. I don't know if I ever had any of these as a kid. As an eight-year-old, I probably would have taken the sticker off of them. I wasn't saving it. And the cards were relatively uninteresting. But it looks like some of these are slightly more valuable than the normal tops card. And then finally, we have glossy no, not, cards. We're not even close to finally. You could get different glossy cards. So if you got a jumbo pack, which had 90-some cards in it, you could get a rookie card. These had such greats as Al Pedrique and Matt Noakes in a rack pack, which was a clear cellophane pack, you could get a, an all-star glossy card. And there was one of those in each rack pack. There was another glossy set that you could collect a certain number of these mail-in cards and send away for. And that one had, uh, had 60 cards that were more of the like notable stars of the day, Andre Dawson and etc. So the, the glossies look fun. It's extra shiny, something to get in a jumbo pack. But then, David, we get into just the weird. It is some of the weird stuff that was either official or unofficial, homegrown or just highly experimental. And the one I really want to start with are the coins. And this, I, I can't imagine that this was officially made by Tops. But there is there is an official Tops baseball coins holder for these things so this is real maybe this is real maybe it was a real actual product that the tops company thought <laughs> people would buy yeah and it's you know at right around this time was when other players started to enter the market and take pieces of tops market share and what we've seen here is a few failed products and the bigs and these coins i don't know if they're legal currency like if you try to use a charlie huff coin <laughs> to buy a soda it's oh. a, i think it's legal tender it's got to be it's got to be you got to think that like a julio franco is got to be worth at least one franc <laughs> <laughs> they look more like bottle caps than coins 
similar to that going into the minting process, they had something called the Gallery of Champions around this time where there were 12 players that were selected and they had aluminum, bronze, and silver replicas of different cards that were a quarter the scale of the cards. So slight, again, messing with sizes here. So you have a much smaller Mark McGuire made in aluminum, bronze, or silver. They also made a replica of the 1955 Duke Snyder card that was sent to card dealers who bought cases of Topps traded cards. And the last one is maybe the weirdest. <laughs> and, and this is a sheet that was made in conjunction with Topps and Campbell's Soup in honor of Philly's great Richie Ashburn that has replicas of Richie's different cards on a backdrop of American flags with the words Campbell's Condensed and Chunky Soups salutes Richie Ashburn's 40 years in baseball and then has Richie Ashburn in a sweater with a cabbie hat and a pipe. Inspirational words from Campbell's Condensed and Chunky Soup. <laughs> the, and... the inclusion of the word chunky is questionable. I like it. <laughs> like Richie Ashford legitimately is an interesting and great player, Hall of Famer. But when I think of like somebody who would have a standalone, <laughs> it doesn't even make sense with the timing. Like This was right around the time that Mike Schmidt retired, so why not have something like in honor of Mike Schmidt? And instead you have like this picture of Richie Ashburn in a sweater smoking a pipe. I don't That's know. That's really I, strange. I like it. And same with the Duke Snyder, bronze Duke Snyder. This was 33, you know, celebrating 33 years of Duke's, again, multiples of 11. The 33rd yes. anniversary of the 1955 Duke Snyder card. It just doesn't, I don't know. This has, this smells to me like, uh, it smells to me like uh, kind of corrupt, corrupt practices, David, where it's. They're trying to get in good with the card dealers, and they say, "Hey, you buy this tops traded. There's a little something in it for you." A 1955 you know, Duke Snyder. Hey, Jimmy. Yeah, you want the? Why don't you make those Fleer cards disappear, and you there's an extra Duke Snyder replica in it. I, it particularly because it is a Brooklyn Dodger. That uh, I appreciate <laughs> your voice. Your <laughs> your character work so i think that was a very good roundup of what we think may be the complete set of 1988 tops cards we might be surprised listeners if you find any other obscure 1988 tops please uh, let us know you can send us an email with the subject of um richie ashburn's sweater <laughs> with the subject Richie Ashburn's sweater and send it to 1988topspodcast at gmail.com <laughs> if, if you're ready let's move on to Jerry Royster let's pull up his card and Jerry Royster infielder for the Yankees and this is card 257 uh, the friend of the card Jerry Royster is in ready position however getting ready to field a ball it's from the profile which is an unusual pick of the cards that we've seen so far it's a good action shot you can actually 
tell who the player is. I think that this would be Jerry playing at shortstop, and there's a opposing player on second base, a little bit blurred in the background. This is a pretty good action shot compared to some of our other terrible pictures that folks have had. Mm-hmm. It's also interesting because while this is our first Yankee, Jerry played 18 games with the Yankees in his career. So he is immortalized on this card as a Yankee, but by the time this card came out, he was on the Atlanta Braves. He spent very little time with the Yankees. This photographer must have just gotten lucky with one of those 18 illustrious Yankees games that Jerry played in. So David, why did we pick him this week then? I was searching, as you do, on StatHead, which is the premium service of baseball reference. And I was looking for the player who had the statistically worst season in 1988 tops. <laughs> and I thought that if I did a, a search for wins above replacement and the lowest ever wins above replacement that I would find somebody in the 87 season. And I didn't, but I did find that the number one worst season statistically in the history of baseball was in 1977 and was a player in the 1988 top set. And that was Jerry Royster, who had a negative 4.1 wins above replacement in 1977. Oh, my goodness. And so I thought maybe it would be interesting to look through Jerry's career and see kind of where he's at now. Well, I love it, David. I, I love talking about bad baseball seasons because it is there's something very cathartic about it. Yeah, and particularly with Jerry, at least, like, it would have been disappointing if I had looked, found a real, this really bad season, and then there was also something terrible happening, or he never was able to get out of that funk. But with Jerry, this really seems like an aberration, so that made me feel a little bit better about how bad that season went for him. That sounds great. So flipping to, flipping to the back of the card, so Jerry... Six feet, 165, born October 18th, 1952 in Sacramento, California. Jerry's got a birthday coming up. Yeah. As we record this right around that, right around that date. And so David, Sacramento, you know, in the notes here, we have a lot about Sacramento. So why don't you tell us about Jerry's childhood and, and his connections to Sacramento? So a lot of this information was found from the Sacramento Sports Hall of Fame, of which Jerry is a member. Jerry said that his earliest memory was being all dressed up, ready to go to his Cub Scout meeting. And his dad took him out to play catch. And they were talking about the Giants and the Dodgers. His mom came out and says, it's time to go to Cub Scouts. And his dad says, he's not going today. And after that, it was... Uh, No more Cub Scouts, all baseball, all sports for Jerry. He was a multi-sport athlete, and according to Jerry, baseball was maybe his third best sport. He was um, a running back on the football team and defensive back, and I think I found somewhere that he was all city in football at defensive back. He was recruited by Notre Dame, Washington State, and Cal to play football. He also ran track and played basketball, Basketball may have been his best sport. He was All-City two years in a row, and they won the Metro League Championship. Jerry had basketball records that were not broken until the great Kevin Johnson came along. 
he was offered scholarships from LSU, UCLA, and Maryland for basketball. So some great opportunities there for Jerry to play football at Notre Dame or basketball at UCLA. And yet he winds up playing baseball. He was kicked off the baseball team because he skipped practice to go to a track meet. It it didn't read like Jerry was shirking responsibilities. It just seemed like Jerry was had a lot of different things going on when he was in high school. At 17, had a great kind of uh, serendipitous opportunity where he was invited by his friend, his friend Roland Office, which is a good name, uh, and who is another Sacramento baseball legend, future MLB player, invited Jerry to come play for his Babe Ruth League team. They needed Jerry to fill in. Turns out a scout was there who saw Jerry play two games at shortstop. The Dodgers scout offered him a deal at 17 years old, and Jerry said no because he had all these other opportunities. The scout comes to his house the next day, and they offered him more money than his dad made, and he (laughs) agreed to play. So he agreed to join the Dodgers at 17 and uh, spends three seasons with the Dodgers in the minors. At 20 years old in 1973, he's hitting 300 in AAA and gets called up for the first time plays in 10 games for the Dodgers. He did that for a couple seasons, 73, 74, 75, as you'll see on the back of the card. He played in 29 games in total in those three seasons for the Dodgers. Interesting from this Sacramento Sports Hall of Fame website, it it talks about the historic moments that Jerry experienced as a player. And one of these I may have to call out. It said that he was in the dugout when the Braves played the Dodgers on April 8th, 1974, when Hank Aaron hit his historic home run to break Babe Ruth's all-time record. Two other Sacramento people were on that Braves team. Roland Office came in to replace Hank Aaron, and Dusty Baker was in the on-deck circle when Aaron hit that home run. According to this Sacramento Sports Hall of Fame page, Jerry was in the dugout, I think that Jerry was playing in Albuquerque at that time. Hmm. So, you know, maybe a little bit of controversy. According to baseball reference, Jerry didn't join the Dodgers until much later in that 74 season. I don't know, David, when the Serial Podcast needs the new season of a mysterious crime to investigate. Maybe they should investigate this potential fraud. Yeah, where was Jerry Royster on April Where 8th, was Jerry Royster? You know, maybe this is our serial moment. I think true crime podcasts are a big deal right now, so we should. Yeah. This is. (laughs) Was he actually in the dugout or not? Yeah. Who who can tell? Uh, I haven't watched the video to, and done a JFK style up and to the left to see if Jerry Royster was the man in the dugout. (laughs) But (laughs) needless to say, he played for a few seasons. Between Albuquerque and and the Dodgers in the early 70s. And then, interestingly, was traded after the 1975 season with Lee Lacey and Tom Pachorek for Dusty Baker and Ed Goodson. And this was called one of the worst trades in Braves history. (laughs) Not necessarily because Jerry was bad. He played 10 seasons with the Braves. 
but because Dusty Baker went on to have some all-star seasons for the Dodgers. And so on the back of this card, it says he's a shortstop and second baseman. Uh, his first season, he was the everyday third baseman for the Braves. He was the eighth best third baseman by defensive wins above replacement. He was on the 1976 Topps All-Star Rookie Team, which we know is a, a sign of greatness. He stole 24 bases that year and hit 248. An okay year for a 24-year-old rookie. Portends good things to come. It did not portend a good 1977. 140 games, a batting average of 216, and a slugging percentage of 288. Six home runs and 28 RBIs for someone who played in a hundred someone who played almost every game that's that's very bad <laughs> yes and <laughs> we've we've talked about slugging percentages before J Jerry's slugging percentage was 288 so as you can see you said he had six home runs he he had two triples and 10 doubles so a lot of singles one breakdown i read was that he rarely got on base enough to do the only thing that he did well, which was steal bases. He stole 28 bases, but he stole as many bases as RBIs, which is not a good sign. And so his his offensive war was minus 1.4, which is pretty bad. That batting average was pretty bad, too. And much kind of an outlier for his career, too. His career batting average is, uh, was 249. So well below his average, even that 288 slugging percentage, Jerry was never known for his power, but that's pretty atrocious. Also, as we mentioned in 1976, he was a good defensive player. In 77, he was moved around a lot. So he was playing at second base, third base, and shortstop. He was particularly bad at shortstop in this season. He had 28 errors in 140 games. 15 of them came at short, and he only played in 51 games at shortstop. So his his fielding percentage at shortstop was 915, so pretty bad. But yeah, just statistically horrendous. Bad in every way. And so, yeah, that, that minus 4.1 war is... Initially, I sorted this by modern era, assuming that guys in the 1870s, some you know, somebody named like Toodles McGee would have had a negative seven war. But no, Jerry's is the absolute worst season ever. This sometimes comes up. Chris Davis, a couple years back, was challenging for this uh, power hitter for the Orioles. Tons of strikeouts kind of just kind of fell apart. And he was challenging Jerry for the worst season ever. And so sometimes Jerry's name comes up in the news when people are like, is this guy going to defeat Jerry Royster for the worst season in history? Mm. Unfortunately for Jerry, he still is top of the list. Mm. Top of the list or bottom of the list. 1977 was not a good one for Jerry. After that, for the rest of his time with the Braves... Things seem to pick up, at least bounce back a little bit to normal for him, right? There's, uh, you know, a few seasons in a row uh, decent after that. In particular, 1979 looks better. Yeah, his best season was in 1979. He hit 273, stole 35 bases, and scored 103 runs. And in 1982, for a, a 
pretty good Braves team that won the NL West, and we won't talk about how Atlanta was in the Western (laughs) division of the National League. While Dale Murphy won the league MVP, when Joe Torre was asked who the team MVP was, he said Jerry Royster. Jerry hit 295 in that 1982 season, and from this video that I found of the Braves handing out team awards, Jerry was there, I think maybe one of the captains of the team, handing out these awards. So clearly uh, liked by his teammates. So he's with the Braves 10 seasons, and then a free agent after 1984, and so he signs with the Padres. Yes, and I found certifiable evidence on baseball reference, that he played in the game where Pete Rose got his 4,192nd hit in 1985 to break Ty Cobb's record. So Jerry was playing second base. It wasn't his fault or anything, but Jerry was on the field for that and played a couple seasons for the Padres. Again, pretty decent player, hit 281 in 85, but his role is a little bit diminished maybe doing a little bit more pinch hitting and platoon work. And then in 1987, signs for the White Sox. So as I said earlier, I remember Jerry's name that he was a guy on the White Sox, but his 55 games are not incredibly memorable. He did have seven home runs in 154 at-bats, which was the highest home run total of his career. And that's pretty impressive. He slugged 448 for the White Sox in 1987 and then was traded for Ken Patterson and played 18 games for a Yankees team that up until August of 87 was in first place and then kind of fell off and ended up in fourth place behind the Brewers, Blue Jays, and Tigers. So Jerry then, after the 87 season, signs for the Braves and closed out his career with the club that he played 10 seasons for. He played 68 games in 1988. As we sometimes see on these cards, by the time the card comes out or by the time the card is being collected, the player is no longer anywhere near the team that they're pictured. (laughs) Jerry, by the time this card was collected, was with the Braves and on his way to retirement. Excellent. So after he retires, he, like like many ex-players, goes into coaching. Where did he start? So Jerry was a coach in the Rockies system for a little while and then went to coach the Brewers. So he was one of the bench coaches for the Milwaukee Brewers under Davey Lopes. When Davey Lopes was fired in 2002, Jerry Royster became the interim manager and then became the full manager for the rest of that season. Unfortunately, they went, the Brewers went 53 and 94 and Jerry was fired at the end of 2002. Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> he, also coached in the minor leagues uh, in the Dodgers system. <laughs> and then he went to the Lotte Giants. Lotte, yes. the international candy conglomerate who owns the Chiba Lotte Marines, also owns the Lotte Giants in Korea. And Jerry was the first non-Korean manager in Korean baseball. Wow. So, and Yeah, he served in that position for three years. They made the playoffs, but didn't get out of the first round of the playoffs in those seasons that he was there. And, you know, spent some time in Boston as third base coach and as a consultant for Nike Baseball. And I was looking to try to figure out where Jerry's at now. And he is at Sierra Canyon School 
which I was I thought like oh he's coaching high school baseball, and then I looked into it and this school is where LeBron James' son goes. Mm. So they clearly have an interest in athletics. The fact that they have a former major league manager as their school <laughs> is their school coach is pretty impressive. I also learned that Jerry's daughter Kara is an actress and she was in Pretty Little Liars and Supernatural. She was like a featured cast member of those shows. Well, so David, you started this exploration in choosing Jerry Royster because you wanted you were curious to see who had the worst season and you ended up stumbling upon the person who had the worst season in baseball history. How do you feel now that you've looked into it and have learned more about Jerry? I was surprised that the name that showed up at the bottom of that list was a name that I recognized. I guess it, it says something about Jerry that he played 140 games in a season where he was, by all accounts, terrible. And that the team stuck with him. And that the team then stuck with him for another seven seasons. I think that it really does say something about Jerry's character that he was able to turn that around. And probably something that makes him a good coach and a good person to talk to kids and talk to talk to players and talk them through a funk. Yeah, one thing I noticed from the story is that Jerry was asked by the manager to play lots of different positions. That can be very unsettling. And if you're going to play four different positions in addition to pinch hitting, that is uh, just a more difficult place to be as a player. And so maybe, in fact, the value came from the fact that he was flexible enough to fill in in other places where the team needed him and where that that performance maybe didn't stack up so great uh, when it came to fielding or hitting that year, you know, but that measurement is wins, wins above replacement. And sometimes the team doesn't have a replacement. Sometimes you are the replacement because there was an injury or the person who was hitting there or, you know, someone's sick or someone, you know, they get traded or uh, they're not available. And the value of being someone who's a utility player can sometimes uh, be overlooked too in in baseball and in other settings too. So we value you very much, Jerry Royster, here on the 1988 Tops podcast. It's a good story to look back on. And so for I'd I'd ask for the listeners out there if you've ever had a real bad year. We're looking at you, 2020. <laughs> we'd love to hear from you. Reach out to us on Twitter. We're Tops 1988 on Twitter. And you can also find us on Facebook, facebook.com slash 1988topspodcast. We would love to hear from you. Thanks a lot. And we'll see you next week.